and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another week. I found the most interesting statistic the other day when I was researching podcasts. So a whopping 35% of you listen to podcasts with someone else. I had no idea. I just assumed everyone listened to podcasts on their own. So if you are here today with us and you have someone with you, hello to you both. I want to also shout out to anyone that has been considering the DISC personality profiling workshop for your team. I have a couple of spots left before the end of the year, so make sure you don't sit on this and you reach out to me via email or direct message ASAP. I will be closing my calendar for the year very soon. So here are three reasons why DISC personality profiling is a must for your workplace. The first is that it enhances team dynamics. Understanding the unique behavioural styles and communication preferences of each of your team members is a game changer. The second is that it turns conflict into collaboration. Miscommunication and conflicts can be major roadblocks in any team's journey. DISC profiling equips your team with a powerful toolkit to navigate those obstacles effectively. And third, it maximizes your individual and your team's performance. Every team is comprised of individuals with diverse talents and strengths. DISC profiling reveals each team member's inherent capabilities, helping leaders and team members alike to make the most of their potential. If you've not invested in a DISC workshop before, it is definitely time for you to reach out. Okay, so for this week's episode, I'm going to change it up a little bit and change the pace. We have an expert coming on with some amazing guidance and advice. Marnie Thomas is the head of positive education at Newcastle Grammar School. She has a master's in applied positive psychology and won the top visible wellbeing teachers award for K-12 in a school at the Global Visible Wellbeing Summit in 2021. She is passionate about strength-based approach in schools and wellbeing literacy. And she loves making wellbeing visible for her students, colleagues, and the wider school community. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. The moment that she realized that it's not her role to fix other people, her belief that we should move beyond individual well-being and start looking at systems, the power of having language around emotions, and how strength and struggle coexist just like grief and gratitude does. We talk a lot about relationships, connection, meeting people where they're at, but how we sometimes still get that wrong. And Marnie shares with us towards the end of this episode some really good information around well-being and adolescence. So if you're a parent or teacher, this section might be really insightful for you. The whole episode is jammed packed with gold nuggets on well-being and the science behind what well-being really is and how you can nurture your very own. So get ready to be inspired, enlightened and uplifted by Marnie Thomas, an extraordinary educator, positive psychology enthusiast and a champion of well-being. 
Welcome, Marnie, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Ali. It's wonderful to be here. Yes, and you are actually at school today, so we might hear a few like knocks on the door or some bells or lots of kids laughing. So I guess we'll just try and let the audience know that that could happen throughout this whole episode. Absolutely. Yes. I'm in my office, students all around me. And Marnie, I love to start every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal? It's really hard to think about one, Ali. I did run this by my students and they insisted that I say the unicorn. I did remind them that unicorns don't exist. And I think that's what they liked about it, that unicorns are magical. They're an anomaly, just like rainbows. At school, I get called the rainbow lady. And I think that's a beautiful reflection of well-being and my role at the school and my belief in inclusivity and diversity and above all, my belief in love. So my students insisted on me saying the unicorn, but I would like to say a bird. Every year at school, we create a vision or a theme for the year. And this year I created the theme sky high. And we're really playing out that idea around the sky being limitless. The sky is constant. It is a place of sunshine and storms. And there is a corner of the sky for all of us, that the sky is actually big enough and beautiful enough for all our struggles and all our strengths. So I like to think of a bird flying through the sky with limitless capacity, sometimes flying high, sometimes flying low, sometimes through the sunshine, sometimes through the storms. So I think I'll go with the bird, but I did want to shout out to the unicorn because I think they're pretty cool and pretty awesome as well. (laughs) And for those that can't see, I'm just laughing because behind you is this massive big picture and colourful rainbow and then all this other colour to the side and you're in a pink jacket with pink lipstick and colourful earrings. And like I was like, I know that's not a unicorn, but when you said unicorn, I'm like, the picture kind of resonates with that. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, I um, very proudly call myself the head of the Rainbow House. Yes. And I think the unicorn is just a beautiful way of saying that if we work really hard, sometimes, just sometimes, miracles can happen. Yes. And we talk a lot about miracles in this podcast because, uh, you know, I've seen a few over my time and they do, they do happen. They do. And Marnie, maybe a great place to start because this is the first time you and I have met as well. And I'm so excited about this conversation, but maybe a good starting point would be for you just to tell us a little bit about you and your background into your career. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for asking. And once again, thank you for having me. It's a thrill to be here. It's hard to know where to start when someone asks, tell me about you. But what a pleasure and what an honour. I'm sitting here in my office with a big rainbow behind me, so I feel as if that might be a good place to start. I'm the Head of Positive Education at Newcastle Grammar School, and I'm very proud to say that it's the first role of its kind at our school. So schools are familiar with wellbeing, but not as familiar with the science of wellbeing. So I think that having that scientific evidence-based approach is incredibly important. So for me to be the first head of positive education, it really matters to me. So here I am at Newcastle Grammar School, head of positive education. So I get to oversee the well-being and positive education of all our beautiful students from kindergarten to year 12. It's also a community engagement role. 
So I guess that's where I am now, but I'm really keen to share with you how I got to be in this rainbow office, in this beautiful role where I get to oversee the well-being of all our students, parents and colleagues at Newcastle Grammar School. Without really knowing it, I guess I've been a positive psychology practitioner my whole life. I've always been interested in happiness. I've always been interested in well-being without really having a language for what all that is. So I started off here in Newcastle. I went to Katara High School, very proud graduate, went to Newcastle University, did my four years of teaching and then took off to Sydney. I got one of those so-called targeted teacher roles and I was willing to go anywhere. I said, absolutely, hand up, send me anywhere. So I very quickly landed in the middle of Western Sydney. So that was exciting, but incredibly nerve-wracking for me. It was my first time moving out of home, leaving my beautiful family, moving to Sydney and starting as a 21-year-old at a high school in the middle of Western Sydney, I absolutely had no clue <laughs> what I was in for. But what I found were humans. I found beautiful humans with a range of socio-cultural challenges that I had never come across in my life. And to give you, I guess, a little bit of context, the school that I taught at had a 20% turnover of staff every year. I started with four other beginning teachers and they had all left by six months into the first year. Wow. It was really challenging. There were lots of social issues at play, but I felt so compelled to not just stick it out because that's what you do, but to learn about my community and to listen and to open my heart and open my mind and to immerse myself fully, wholly, completely into this new community. And what I discovered, as I said, was something just fundamentally human. And as I said, I now have a language for this, but what I was observing is that as humans, we just want to be seen, heard, and felt. We want a place to belong. We want to feel valued. We want somebody to show up for us. And we just want to get that sense of togetherness, connectedness. So I, I was young, very, very young. I was given a year 11 class when I first arrived and I hadn't yet turned 22. So I was teaching 18-year-olds and I was 21 and I was missing home. But I really believe that that was the best thing for me. Really challenging context, all kinds of funny stories. One that stays with me, a beautiful student from a tiny island that I'd never heard of called Tokelau in the Pacific. The first person in her entire village on the island to ever get a HSC. Wow. And it really mattered. You know, she was our school captain. We still keep in touch. Oh, my God. She, it was just, it was absolutely gorgeous. I was her English teacher and her ancient history teacher. And she went on to university and to travel and, and to, uh, these are the cliches I know, but these are the joys and yeah. these are the depths of teaching that you actually get to walk with people. And I guess that's where I discovered something fundamental to who I am now. I discovered that strength and struggle coexist that it's okay to be strong and to struggle in the same moment. Mm -hmm. And this community, there were moments of struggle, but it was incredibly strong. And I had this amazing opportunity to learn about these young people, learn their stories, to listen to them. And it was challenging. There were a lot of tough moments in the beginning. There were lots of times where the students just thought, who are you? There were lots of, lots of inappropriate language, just 
F off, miss, who are you? You're not going to be any different. You won't last. And I didn't blame them for that. It was actually a very, very powerful way for me to begin my teaching career. And I stayed, stayed for six years. And I was just thinking then, as you said that, I know this isn't what the podcast is about, but I'd want to just pause there and just dive just a little bit deeper into that around, you know, when you said, what was some of the challenging moments? What was the most challenging moment for you during those six years, do you think? I think for me, something that was really challenging is accepting it's not my role or my job to fix other humans. That's a big lesson, isn't it? Yeah, a very, very big lesson. It was coming from a family that was incredibly close. We shared everything, deep sense of love and connection and belonging. I instantly wanted to create that kind of a context and that kind of an environment for my students. I felt compelled to tell them that I cared about them and that I I was here to be the best that I could be for them. But that takes time. Mm. Your relationships, flourishing relationships take time. And trust is fundamental and a sense of connection and all those things that we know help to make flourishing relationships. So I had to give myself permission over time to know that wasn't my role. Mm. And honestly, I found that very, very difficult. I, when I moved to Sydney, I, I moved in with my boyfriend, who's now my husband. We have three children. He watched me for six, seven, eight months crying every night. I, I was very, very naive. I, I didn't really have an expectation. And I had never seen some of the things that I was seeing. And there was a moment, there was this one epiphanic moment where my husband said, well, what are you going to do? This is not good for you or your well-being. Do you think that you'll, you'll leave? And, and that was shocking to me because I'd never considered leaving. I said, no, well, I'm not leaving. And it was just that moment where I had to say to myself, well, let's go. Let's just step up. Yeah, let's shift that mindset. That's okay. So just giving myself permission to know that that's not my role. It's not my role to come along and to fix things and to change the circumstances. It was just my job to listen and to lean in to that community and to learn. And once I accepted that, that strength and struggle coexist and, and that these amazing young people have got something to share, it really gave me a sense of who I was in a deeper way. But who, who am I? to think that anything needs fixing. This is a, a beautiful, vibrant, dynamic community as it is. Mm. And if I can just come to it and meet these gorgeous humans where they're at, then we're going to be on the right pathway. Mm. That was really powerful for me. And I guess when I think back on it too, personally, I didn't have any idea of the challenges that I would face. So professionally, I, I felt challenged, but I knew that I was probably exactly where I needed to be. But over the six years that I was there, I had all these wonderful other experiences that were enriching. And I also had some experiences that were very challenging. I, I got married, but I also had an IVF journey, had a, a miscarriage. My mum, my beautiful mum was diagnosed with breast cancer. So, so when I think back on those six years, when I was 21, moving to Sydney, working with a new community of people, thinking about the people that I deeply love, my own journey towards having a family, it, it truly shaped who I am. And when I look around my office now, which is full of beautiful photos and rainbows, as you just said before, I feel very lucky and I attribute much of it to my six years in Western Sydney and to that beautiful community that met me 
and that saw me and that allowed me to show up for them. And I feel very, very lucky that I had that experience. Mm, there's so much in what you just said. Like, I was just like, and I want to ask about this and this. But I was thinking, like, I was thinking there was a few things. One of them in particular was when you were talking about I'm not there to fix. I just want to highlight that because we can learn that multiple times throughout our life. Like when you were saying that, I was thinking that was a lesson I needed to learn really early on as a therapist working with young kids. And it took me a long time to learn that. And I used to think about sometimes my role is to plant seeds and someone else is going to water them later. Like I'm not there to do it all. Yes. But I was only thinking that it's in the last couple of years, I've had to revisit that because my mum got sick with dementia and I wanted to fix it. And, it, and I was grieving and forcing and challenging and like butting up against a, 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 like a wall until I realized that my job wasn't to fix. And so, you know, I was reflecting as you said that around what a beautiful lesson to learn so early on, but we can sometimes have to revisit that lesson yes. <laughs> over and over and over. And as parents, and I'm sure you still see it as an educator. Oh, I absolutely hear you, Ali. And that word that you just said, grief, I've learned a lot about grief as well. I saw a lot of things in Western Sydney with that community, with those young people, with their parents. As I said, socioculturally, a lot was going on. I learned a lot about grief and I have in my own life as well. I actually wrote a blog just recently about it that seemed to really land with the audience that grief and gratitude also coexist. We talk about this on our podcast. Fantastic. Oh my God, I've never heard anyone else say it. I say it all the time because sometimes we like try and think it needs to be one or the other. Let's just have a little conversation. <laughs> this excites oh, me because I this talk so about exciting. this all the time. Yes, Ali, I'm totally with you. I, I wrote this beautiful piece because my son, Jack, turned 16. I have three boys. I'm incredibly fortunate to have this beautiful family around me and Jack turned 16. And I am always the person at Christmas, at birthdays, who is wholeheartedly celebrating with tears streaming down my face because I'm so acutely aware that I'm unaware of those imperceptible moments where we move from one phase to another. And I couldn't quite fathom that my first baby, who we fought so hard to have all those years ago, was turning 16. And I think about it now and I get emotional yeah. because I am so wholeheartedly grateful. Yeah. And that gratitude is also allowed to feel like grief yes. because I know I will never have that moment in the birthing suite ever again. I will never have those breastfeeding cuddles. You know, I will never have those late nights where we feel like we're never going to sleep again. All those things pass by us so imperceptibly that we don't realise they're gone until they're gone. Mm. And I know a lot of us talk about these things and there's lots of articles about it in the media, but I just needed it to land for me. And, I, and again, that realisation when I was in Western Sydney that strength and struggle coexist, so, so does grief and gratitude. And so I feel deeply grateful for those moments it seems really silly or paradoxical to say that you could be grateful for grief, but essentially I'm grateful for love and mm. that's why we grieve. Mm. Mm. So well said because I often talk about it in that sometimes people think that they need to be grateful all the time for everything and that they compress the grief. And so very similar to what you're saying, it's like we need to express it and we need to feel it and we need to be okay with it, but gratitude can sit side by side with it as well. Yes, absolutely. And not only within my own family do I have these conversations, but I am so fortunate that I get to work with young people. And it's a very powerful conversation to have with young people, that idea of rain and rainbows. Without sadness, there is no joy. 
they quite literally would not exist if it were not for the other. Being an English teacher, I explore it in literature every single day. Shakespeare knew how fundamental the opposites of humanity are, appearances versus reality, truth and perception. So I'm I'm very fortunate that I've always surrounded myself with literature, but it's not until you let it land within you and you see it and you feel it and you breathe it within your own life that you realise actually that is why I feel the way that I do because I love so deeply and so completely. It lands as as grief, but also underneath that is that deep sense of gratitude. So I totally hear you. I, I, I get that those two things go together so beautifully. And the other thing that I heard you say as you were talking about those early years was around being curious about the people in front of you and listening. And I was thinking, as you said that, around how you were able to find a way to show up, to show up for yourself, but to show up for the other person in conversation, in the way that you're present. And I think that's something that again, can take a lifetime to learn and we kind of ebb and flow in and out of. But it's really, really important that we do prioritize the relationships that are important to us. And that does involve us stepping into a space of being fully wholeheartedly there and present and listen and be curious and not just be walking in with our own ego or walking in with our own agenda or our own expectations as we go in to meet someone in a relationship. Oh, I totally agree. And that word relationship is so incredibly complex, but it's just fundamental to who we are as humans. But it's actually what drives me as an individual. We know that the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. And flourishing relationships take time. They take an investment. But above all, they really do take listening and showing up for that person. And as you said, truly being present. And it's not always easy. Mm -mm. I love talking to my students about discomfort and taking small steps towards discomfort. And relationships can be uncomfortable, but everything is uncomfortable and difficult and awkward and challenging until one day it's not. We just have to keep going with something if we feel as if it aligns with our values and it's something that matters to us. So I I think that that idea of rain and rainbows, it lands everywhere that we can't have one without the other. We can't have a flourishing relationship without some of the challenges that are part of that journey. So taking those steps towards discomfort is something that I've learned as well. That's part of feeling strong and struggling. It's knowing that we can do it. Uh, And something else that I say to my students and myself and my family is that we actually don't do hard things for the present version of ourself. We do it for a future version so that we can look back and we can say, I did that. It was hard and it mattered. And that doesn't have to just be at work. Too often we think about the workplace or we think about more physical challenges, but they can be in our relationships too. That sometimes we just need to keep going because in the future we'll need to look back and know that we did that. And it allows us to feel confident and gives us some insight into being able to do it again. Absolutely. Because the more hard things we do, the more confidence and and self-worth we have to be able to try hard things again. Like, you know, the more problems we face, the more adversity we face, Mm. the more we're able to say there's no problem we can't solve. You know, we might not know how or when or what that road's going to look like, but I've been here and I've survived every day and I've gotten through every single day to where I am today and I've done hard things. Yes, absolutely. When I farewell our beautiful year 12s every year, when we set them off to fly high and to engage with the storms and the sunshine that their life will entail, I always say to them that 
I hope for the complexity, for the breadth, depth and height of all emotions for them, for all life experiences. And that doesn't mean that I wish sadness upon them. It means that I want gratitude for them and grief because that is actually what it means to be human. Yeah. So I, I really think it's important to have those conversations. I sometimes worry a little bit in the education space or perhaps the wider pop space words gain traction. And during the pandemic, we talked a lot about resilience. And people forgot that there is no such thing as resilience without the struggle that precedes it. We actually have to struggle. And a little bit of that discomfort is okay. So I guess when I think all the way back to when I started teaching, that's what I was really giving myself permission to do, to feel uncomfortable, to sit in that discomfort, and for that to be okay. And know that through harnessing my strengths, which is my other passion, when I think about the science of well-being, that's what really lands for me, a strengths-based approach. Mm. And sometimes we just have to dial up perseverance and know that through getting up every day and putting one foot in front of the other and stepping towards discomfort, that has to matter. We've started to talk about the science of well-being. So I was thinking it'd be a really good place now to dive deeper into that money. Are you able to tell us what we're currently learning about well-being and the science that sits behind it? Absolutely. Firstly, I will say I'm not an expert. I'm very fortunate to have studied the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology at the University of Melbourne, and I'm a prolific reader. But I would just like to say I'm not an expert, but I'm very interested in the space. But I would like to start by saying that perhaps the most exciting thing for me at the moment is that we're moving beyond the individual. We're not just thinking about well-being for ourselves. We're thinking about it more from a systems approach. That systems-based approach is really important because it looks at us together. You probably have seen or read lots of articles about this idea of a me, we, us approach and really moving towards that notion that it's a shared human experience. I'm very fortunate in my role as Head of Positive Education at Newcastle Grammar School that I'm able to use my role, I guess, as a, a platform to deliver wellbeing science to an entire community, to a whole system, and really think about what could that look like? What does a wellbeing framework or a strategy look like, knowing that every individual is different with different strengths? So I think that's a really exciting thing in the wellbeing space, the systems-based approach. But the other thing I would like to mention that I think is completely central, not only to well-being, but to who we are as humans, is well-being literacy. I had the incredible honour of working with Professor Lindsay Odes from the University of Melbourne, and he is absolutely the expert in the field. It's his work in well-being literacy that really got me interested. And that's what I think my primary role is here at Newcastle Grammar School, making well-being visible, but also giving people an opportunity to build their well-being literacy because we know that if we don't have a word for something then it doesn't exist language is central so working with kindergarten students on their strengths and the language of strengths is so important i was reading an article a while ago that was talking about adolescents and many of them associate with probably three emotions happiness sadness and anger as we know there are limitless emotions, but if we don't have a word for it, then it actually doesn't exist. So we may well believe that we're angry when actually we might be feeling 
isolated. We might be feeling frustrated. We might be feeling sad. We might be feeling a sense of shame or guilt, but it might be landing as anger. So I feel very passionate about wellbeing literacy. And I love the idea that it's a capacity like reading and writing and viewing and listening in our English space, we don't dispute the importance of literacy, numeracy, their capabilities. I truly believe that wellbeing literacy is also a capability that should be shared among all humans. Yeah, you know, that, that idea that Martin Seligman said years ago that wellbeing is every human's birthright, along with wellbeing being every human's birthright. Wellbeing literacy has to be fundamental to that experience of wellbeing. If we don't have words for it, it doesn't exist. So it's very important to me that I work with my community to build that wellbeing literacy so that we can all be on a journey to flourishing. And I guess the other part, in addition to those two things that I mentioned about a systems approach and wellbeing literacy, is a strengths-based approach. So that was where I did most of my research and most of my study for my master's capstone thesis in what does a strengths-based approach look like in schools and how can we use strengths language to be the best that we can be? And what does it actually look like? Again, it's become a bit of a buzzy term. We talk about play to your strengths, but what does that actually look like? So I'm really interested in the absence the excess, you know, the overuse, the underuse of strengths. So that's the science that I bring to my role every day, talking to young people about how they can use their strengths to be the best they can be. Let's talk about that a little bit. <laughs> let's open that up. So I've written those three points down and we're going to go through each of them, but let's start with the strengths. Let's start at the tail end and work our way back. Tell us a little bit more about that. When you say it's really important, how do you start that process for someone that's listening that's like, I hear people talking about strengths-based approach, but what actually is it and, and how do I start? Where's that zero to one or zero to three? My school, for example, we have a positive education approach. So as I mentioned, I teach English, but I also teach positive education. So we have timetabled lessons as well as a whole school approach. So we have a framework whereby the language of visible wellbeing permeates the entire school, but we also have timetabled lessons. So if I think about what that looks like for a year seven student and where your listeners might be able to begin, we start with unpacking what is a strength. And we start with some activities that hopefully show young people what that looks like. And I'm sure many of your listeners have done activities like this, but at the start of the year, I got my beautiful class to just do a little exercise with their non-dominant hand. So they had to pick up a pen and they just had to do some writing in their non-dominant hand. And obviously we all know it doesn't look good. When I'm writing with my left hand, it's not my best. And we decided collectively that spending time trying to improve the writing of our non-dominant hand would be a waste of time. It really wouldn't enhance our lives. So what we will do is be the best we can be with our dominant hand. So by the time that gets to year 11 and 12, they actually need to be really proficient at writing with their dominant hand because we're still being assessed in the HSC as a written exam. So it was a very tangible example that sometimes when we play to our strengths, that's more important than trying to come in with a deficit approach and trying to fix something. As I mentioned before about fixing people, trying to fix something that actually doesn't need to be fixed. And that is not to say that there are not going to be times where we do need to work in the deficit space. I think it is really important that we don't send a message that we don't ever work on our weaknesses or we don't use the word weakness. I believe that's really important. My year sevens were playing this idea out and one of my students said to me, I'm an elite swimmer. 
and and she is she swims at national level and she absolutely has to work in the deficit space if her tumble turns don't improve then she won't improve overall so it's very important to think about is this something that i can play to my strengths on or do i need to be brave and take those steps towards discomfort and work on it so we begin with year 7 just talking about a whole range of things like that and then we do the VIA character strength survey to give them a profile of who they are. And they get to learn what are called their signature strengths. This is who I am as a human. So for me, my number one strength is love, followed by social intelligence, perseverance, zest, and kindness. And that tells a bit of a story about who I am. But it doesn't mean that I don't dial up the other strengths when I need to. I can absolutely be brave when I need to be. I can engage in self-regulation. I can engage in gratitude. So all those strengths live within all of us. We embody all 24 character strengths, but we dial them up or dial them back when we need to. That's really important to know. There's also a big difference between a performance strength and a character strength. And that's something that we talk a lot about with year seven and eight as well, with all of our school community. And that example that I gave you of the swimmer, she would identify swimming as a performance strength. She can't be the best that she can be at swimming if she's also not dialing up her character strengths, if she isn't persevering, if she isn't brave, if she isn't engaging in self-regulation. Because most mornings, she actually doesn't want to get up at four in the morning. She has to make a choice to do that. So using all of that strengths language with young people is very, very important. But something that landed for me when I was studying strength science is that throughout our lives, our strengths will change. When I was doing my master's, I really needed to dial up perseverance, for example. But we know that perseverance is challenging by its very nature. It's hard to do. So it was interesting throughout the period of my master's degree, my top five strengths changed. As a strength, hope is very highly correlated to life satisfaction. And interestingly, hope slipped out of my top five and perseverance came in because I needed to persevere over the long period. I needed to be gritty. Angela Duckworth's beautiful work on that relationship between passion and perseverance. So I was deliberately choosing perseverance over hope. It doesn't mean hope can't come back into my life, but over that two-year period, I actually did have to let go of a little bit of my life satisfaction because I needed to put time and energy and effort into something that I valued. So I needed to work over the long term, taking those steps, those uncomfortable steps towards my big goal. So they're all messages for our young people that, as we said before, resilience only comes through a struggle. I loved what strength science gave me. It gave me permission to say, this is who I am. And it's actually okay. Gave me that language. It doesn't mean that I won't be hopeful ever again. It doesn't mean that I won't be happy. I was still fundamentally content but I was also dialing up that perseverance over the long term. So I think this is a very powerful language for young people and for all of us to know that we can do hard things and that there are 24 character strengths that we can dial up that live inside us every single day. We may need to engage with forgiveness. It may be it's perseverance. Maybe it's perspective. Maybe it's curiosity. Maybe it's creativity. So everybody is different, and that's what I love about it, that we're all different. And I'm thinking, you know, we can hear the kids in the background, by the way, for everyone's, it's like, what is that oh, noise? Yes. It's like my beautiful students. And I've just had three of them at my door waving to me. 
<laughs> One thing I'd like to ask you about in the strength-based space is around, you know, what I've noticed over time is our greatest strength can also be a challenge at times. I totally agree with you, Ali. The example that I gave earlier about learning that it's not my job to fix people, that's my number one strength. To love and be loved is fundamentally who I am. I get out of bed every single day for relationships. That's what drives me. That's what lights me up. As I just mentioned, my students at the door giving me a wave because they knew I was excited about this podcast today. But that's also the thing that I sometimes need to consider. I need to dial that back sometimes. It's really important to know that's okay. And if we get it wrong, that's okay too. I very regularly with my own children and with my students bring that honesty and authenticity into the space. You know what? I'm really sorry. I got that wrong. Could we just talk about how that landed for you? And then give them a space to talk through how that made them feel. Go, I, I apologize. I feel that and I'm sorry. You know, I, I think that that's such a powerful thing to do that my, my strength can sometimes, it can be a lot. And sometimes it might not be in the right measure. So strength science is also about knowing what does optimal look like? And knowing that that will be different in different contexts and it requires social intelligence. And what you're saying there, Mani, just just jumping back a bit around revisiting what happened in that relationship, like that is really key. So I want to highlight that. When there's been something happened between you and another person, whether that be your child, your work colleague, your husband, a friend, it is important to revisit that moment and say to them, you know, what happened for you in that moment and be really curious and be really open to hearing their experience because that's what makes that connection and that bond stronger. When you talk about adversity and needing to experience adversity to have resilience, it's the same thing in relationships. If you're not revisiting those moments and having a conversation around what happened for the other person and really understanding it and giving them a space to talk about it, that relationship doesn't get the opportunity to grow like a flower doesn't get the opportunity to grow without sun. I totally agree with you. And when I think about my beautiful husband, his number one strength is honesty and number two is humor. Mm. Sometimes for me, the humor might not land because I'm not in that space, but I'm also very aware that that perhaps might be how it needs to land for him in that space. So sometimes, even though we've been together since I was 19 and we had three beautiful children, sometimes when you you meet each other where you're at, with the best intentions, you still don't get it quite right. But it can be, I totally get where you were coming from. This is where I was coming from. It might be an overplaying or an underplaying of a strength. You know, here in a high school setting, the adolescent space, of course, is incredibly interesting, complex, amazing, gorgeous, beautiful. I, I love it. I just love teenagers. I love, I mean, I love humans. But so often in the adolescent space, there's an overplaying or an underplaying of strength. And very often it's overplaying humor and bravery, you, you know, especially with our beautiful young boys, you know, who are trying to find who they are. You know, in a space that presents them with so many different constructions of masculinity, it's really important to be able to give them a safe place to say, what happened there? You know, where was kindness? And my students can say to me, oh, miss, you're right. Yep, yeah, that wasn't kind. And simple language like that can really, really work. We know what leadership, say, for example, can look like. But we also know that overplaying that can actually just make other people feel small. Mm. So just getting that language going and thinking with young people about what are your strengths? What do they look like optimally? 
but also when we overplay them, when we underplay them, that's okay too. Let's just be real about it. And what you just said, be real. Be okay when you recognize that you have overplayed or underplayed. That's not necessarily a criticism. And that's, you know, that's kind of sometimes the language we use at home is I say to my husband, I'm not trying to criticize you here. I'm trying to explain how I felt in this moment. So please don't feel like this is an attack. And so that is our, like, when you talk about how important language is, you know, someone else will have a different way of setting the platform for the conversation. But that's my way because sometimes when I speak, I'm so direct that it can come across as I'm attacking. And that is, that's not my intention. So I I just name it for what it is and say, this is actually me trying to explain it so that I can understand what happened for you in that moment, because I think we're on different pages here. Oh, absolutely. And exactly the same for me and my family. And here within my school context, the primary role of adolescence is to shape an identity. There is no more vulnerable time in our lives than when we are so robustly identity forging every single day. So when I think about really what's going on in that teenage brain every single day, of course, they're going to get it wrong, as we all do as humans. And need to get it wrong. They need to. And look, it might even it might not even be from time to time. They can get it wrong. We all can get it wrong all the time on a daily basis. That's what we do. You know, and we pick each other up and we keep going. So it's really, really important that young people know that, as you said, they have to make mistakes. They have to fall. That's what learning is. Money, we've spoken about the strength-based approach. I mean, there's so much more we could dive into there, right? We could do a podcast just on strength. We've also spoken, I think, quite quite a lot around wellbeing literacy and how important that is because we kind of, if we don't have that shared experience and that shared language, it's really hard to communicate through that and to be able to understand and build relationships and build connection. Just curious to know, Marnie, a little bit more around the systems approach. When you talk about a framework behind wellbeing, what does that look like for you? How do you kind of map that out and and work that out and what is it? Well, as you can imagine, at a school that has a head of positive education, we made a very deliberate decision a, a while ago to set up a wellbeing system. Just on that, intentionality is so important when it comes to well-being. Well-being has to be by choice rather than by chance. So we have engaged with the research around a systems-based approach. And for us, we had an opportunity to work with Professor Lee Waters from the University of Melbourne. We are what's called a visible well-being school. And so we use her framework, which is SEARCH. There's lots of acronyms in positive psychology. And her acronym SEARCH is strengths, emotional management, attention and awareness, relationships, coping and habits and goals. So it acts like a pathway. It acts like the inputs and the outputs to our well-being that are going to get us hopefully to well-being. So we know that well-being is a goal. We all work towards that every single day. So for us, we use the search framework to get us towards well-being We identify well-being in our school as being feeling good, functioning well, and doing good. It's not enough just to feel good or to do good. We actually want to function well in between as well. Further to that definition of well-being, we also work with Martin Seligman's PERMA well-being theory. So another acronym that stands for positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. So I know this is very wordy, but we know that well-being is the goal and PERMA is the goal. In Martin Seligman's book, Flourish, he talks about how all those elements of our well-being that he calls PERMA are measurable. And like the weather, well-being is a very complex construct. 
And it doesn't come down to just one thing. The weather is made up of a range of components. So it might be wind speed, barometric pressure, rainfall, humidity, all those things combine to give this complex construct of the weather. So PERMA acts like that. So that's our goal. We want to have positive emotions. We want to have meaning in our life and we want to be engaged and we want good relationships and we want a sense of meaning. But for us in our system, we needed a way to get there. So for us, working with Professor Lee Waters and the search framework, that helps us to get there. Why it worked for us is that S is at the front, strengths. So that's really the language that permeates our whole community, that strengths really helps us to get towards our well-being. Emotional management helps us to get there. Having attention and awareness, relationships, coping, habits and goals. So all of our staff are trained in that framework. That's really important to us that everybody in our community has an awareness of those acronyms and it goes beyond just an acronym that we have an understanding of the science So we've had training over years with Professor Lee Waters in the search framework, and we've talked through how that can land for us in our context. So what does that look like in the classroom, on the basketball field, in the swimming pool, in the music department? What does it look like on the drama stage? Like what does flourishing look like in all of those spaces? So it does sound like a lot of words, and it is, lots of acronyms. But for us, we just think about it very simply that well-being is our goal, We know that we can't be feeling the best every single day, and that's okay. We're not meant to be. But what we can do is work towards that every day. And I guess it's all well and good to think about a big overarching framework. What we remind ourselves every day is that actually when it comes to well-being, tiny is mighty. So it's those small things that we can do on a daily basis to nourish our well-being. Sometimes they're hard to do. Putting routines into place can be hard. Yeah, we've talked about perseverance. It is definitely something that we need to decide to do. So choosing happiness is really important. We know that happiness, again, is a complex construct. But if we think it more in terms of meaning, a deep sense of purpose, a contentment, yeah, how could we work on that every single day? So I guess to give you an example, we really resonate with the work of Professor Barbara Fredrickson and her broaden and build theory of positive emotions. So one of the search framework pathways is emotional management. And we know how important that is to our overall well-being. So on that pathway to well-being, we know that our emotional management is really important. So Barbara Fredrickson suggests that there are 10 positive emotions that primarily we identify with as humans. And those 10 emotions, joy, gratitude, serenity, interest, hope, pride, amusement, inspiration, awe and love, very much a part of our lives every single day. But if we don't look for them and we don't try to find them, then they can definitely get away from us. So her broaden and build theory, it talks about the capacity of positive emotions to broaden our perspective, our psychological resources, our view of the world, and to build our psychological capacity, that when we broaden our mindset, we actually build our capacity as a human. And these tiny but mighty positive emotions have the capacity to do that. So it seems silly 
to think really that a tiny micro moment with another human could have such a big positive impact on our well-being, but it does. As I said before, that tiny is mighty. So something that's really landed for me is her idea of micro moments of positivity. She talks about these micro moments of positivity resonance that we share with other humans. So we don't need to have a big engagement with another human to actually come away feeling good, functioning well, and doing good, like building those blocks of our well-being. So for me, perhaps something that your listeners might be interested in is I've adopted a daily practice of reflecting on micro moments of positivity. Perhaps one of the most robustly researched positive emotions is gratitude. So for me, noticing three micro moments of positivity every day and noting them in a gratitude journal, it can be a literal or a metaphoric journal, has made an enormous difference to my life. You know, when I think back to when I was in Western Sydney, struggling a little bit personally, struggling professionally, trying to find my space, I needed to try to focus on what I could control, control what I can control, and I could definitely control gratitude. And I could think about those three things that brought me joy every single day. What I can hear is you're filling up the bucket and you're constantly putting a little bit in, you're chipping in every day, you're just filling that bucket up so that when you do need to go to that kind of well and pull out some water because you something's going on in your world or you know you need to absolutely put your attention to something, someone in your family's sick and you just got to put all your attention to there, you've got this whole full bucket of water there that you can pull from as opposed to pulling from an empty bucket. That's kind of what I'm hearing here. Yeah, absolutely. And so similarly to what we were saying before about resilience, Mm. but also what we were saying about doing hard things, that we actually do hard things for the future version of ourselves so we can draw upon it and know that we can do it again in the future. It's just creating a reservoir of positive moments that we can draw upon. But it also just it realigns our perspective. I like to talk to students and my parents and the community about the dirty window syndrome. We can be looking through the same window at the same vista, but if the window is dirty, we get a totally different view. It's really important to know that our view can change from day to day, but if we have this reservoir of positive experience that we can draw upon, then it might actually help to change the view on the day that we need it. So it all ties together so beautifully, but I definitely endorse trying to notice those micro moments because tiny is so mighty. Those little moments make such a difference to our worlds. Thank you so much for like sharing your knowledge, but more so than your knowledge, sharing your passion and your vitality for life. Like I think you use the word zest somewhere in your strengths. And I was like, that's how I feel having this conversation. It's like just being in the same space as you automatically gives energy because you are so vibrant and passionate about what you do. And that, that always translates, well, not always, but it does certainly does for me, translates across for me to be like, oh, if I can take a small piece of that for today, I'm just going to go out there and have smiles and, you know, rainbows and unicorns. And just before we jump off, I just want to quickly ask you what's coming up this year because you have some exciting stuff and you're doing some amazing things. 
Yes, actually, in a few weeks' time, I'm flying to Canada. I've been invited to the International Positive Psychology Association World Congress, and I'm presenting a workshop. I'm actually presenting a workshop on my Wellbeing for Breakfast series. So here in Newcastle, I host a breakfast series where I invite business and community members to come along and to learn about the science of wellbeing. So last year, we got that going and we did one a term and we've started it again this year. So I just love making the science of wellbeing come along for people. Hopefully they can take it back to their workplaces, take it back to their families, and they can also make it come alive for them. But no, I'm really, really excited. And then much later in the year, we've got our Australian Positive Education Schools Association Conference, and we're looking forward to that as well. Newcastle Grammar School loves to present at those conferences as well. So I'm very, very lucky. Um, But you know what? Before that, I'm having a holiday with my beautiful family, my three children and my husband. So all of that I am looking forward to. And we love to finish every podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. So many people, my goodness. My students, absolutely, and my children, my husband, whose number two strength is humour, my children just absolutely make me belly laugh. But it's my students. Every single day, they make me laugh. All my gorgeous best friends say, Marnie, how do you do it? How do you work with teenagers? I say, because they're so funny. Yeah. Teenagers are gorgeous. They're hilarious. They're vulnerable. They embody strength and struggle every day. A few years ago, my year 11 and 12 students decided to just start calling me queen and it's stuck. So I get called Mama T, the rainbow lady, but definitely all over the school. Here she comes, the actual queen. And oh I just, my God. <laughs> and, and you know, I, yes, slay. So, you know, I, I'm really grateful for the relationships and they make me laugh. They're absolutely gorgeous, my students. So that's who I would say. And thank you so much, Marnie, for giving up your time today. We definitely had many, many students on this podcast. I could hear them all throughout the middle. Um, (laughs) So anyone that's still with us, thank you for staying with us. Marnie and I have been trying to line up this podcast for many, many months and both of us have very busy schedules. So we just went with what we could do and, you know, hopefully you are all taking something away. I certainly have. So thank you, Marnie. Thank you very much, Ali. Thank you so much for having me sending love to you and your beautiful listeners. I feel incredibly honoured to do what I do. Making wellbeing visible for my community is absolutely my pleasure. I feel so lucky, like I said, to do what I do. And I'm really grateful just to be here with you. And thanks for letting me share my story. Wow, Marnie has so much uplifting energy. I just love what she is doing in schools and the broader community and took so much away from this episode. Her passion for positive psychology and well-being shines through in every word, making her a true champion of well-being in the educational sector. As we conclude this episode, I invite you all to take the lessons and insights you've gained from today's discussion and apply them in your own personal and professional worlds. Have an awesome week, everyone, and we will see you next Monday for a very interesting discussion with Pete, a man who has swum every single day for 10 years straight. It is an episode where we dive deep into why he does what he does and his mindset around endurance training. See you all next Monday. Have an awesome, awesome, awesome week. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode. 